and just both on an individual level, when I'm talking with individuals about, you know, making change in their lives or their career, like I want them to understand it's like, you can still have a major effect in what happens without having the end all be all answer. You don't have to save the day. Welcome to On Your Terms with Erin King, a show about living a life you truly love. Here's Erin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of On Your Terms. I'm Erin King, and I have to be honest, today our guest is maybe the smartest human I've ever met. This is a big claim, but if you listen to the rest of this episode, which I hope that you do, you will also come to the conclusion that the woman you're about to hear today really truly offers a perspective that fires you up, that makes you wanna go out there and tell your story and share your message with the world like nobody's business. Friends, please welcome to the show, one of my dearest friends on earth, Miss Tamsin Webster. Oh, thank you. Hey, Erin. Oh, my friend. I'm excited to be here. Oh my gosh. I am so excited to talk to you. We've been visiting for like 25 minutes. We had to cut it off and push the damn button and get this party started because whenever I talk to you, I just get so excited about the possibilities of what we can do. And a lot of our listeners here at Success Magazine are fellow entrepreneurs, authors, speakers, and they are, they're storytellers. Yes. And you really are, besides being one of my favorite people, one of my dearest friends, you are the best in the business, I believe. At I've always described you like this, and you know this. It's like when you have an idea that you're excited about and you want to share it with the world, and in your mind, it makes total sense. Then you go to share it with your boss or an audience or a prospect, and it doesn't come out the way you have it in your mind. And I always describe it as almost like you have this favorite necklace and it's all tangled up and you're rushing to get to this big date and you just can't untangle it. Tamsin is the gal takes this tangled necklace of your mind, untangles it and hands it back just in time for you to rock the date night. I mean, is that fair to say? I, it, well, you say it, so I'll, I'll take it. Cause it's one of my favorite descriptions of it. I guess. I, it, I mean, I think it's, I mean, that's what I love to help people do. I mean, I love ideas. I think everyone has a big idea in them in one way or another. Uh, and I just, it, it gives me physical pain to think that it's something as simple as words or structure that is keeping that big idea from having the impact that it deserves. So mm-hmm. I, I love that. So thank you. Mm, well, thank you for, for being here. And, you know, you and I, we are in this amazing mastermind, the She Noters, which I'm yes. so blessed. I can't believe I'm a member of this, this fearsome foursome of us that we all come together. We're having our fun summit in January. I cannot wait to see you live, hug you and just have all the fun. So Tamsin and I have a really interesting friendship because Tamsin is full on Boston and I am full on California, which are the two most diametrically culturally opposite places, probably <laughs> in the United States, but it's what makes our friendship so special. And, and what I, what I love most about you is that with your, your newsletter, your books, your workshops, your talks, you really, you know, empower people to figure out how to not just share their origin story or not just create a, an excellent argument, although you do rely on some of the classic Socratic method, Greek philosopher methods in, in a lot of your methodology. But what you really do is you help uh, you help people to hear a version of someone's idea, but hear it in a way that they almost hear it as their own idea. And one of your big, uh, I love this phrase, you always say that the way you can construct an argument or story or perspective is you do it in a way that once the person hears it, they can't 
unhear it. And once they know it, they can't unknow it. So before we dive into how we do that, let's rewind it back to Tamsin. So when was the moment in your career, which I know you've had so many incredible stories and I want to dive into a couple of them if you're so generous to share some of the personal ones. But what was that moment for you where you sort of discovered that you did have this this superpower, this ability to to take really complex subjects from some of the world's most brilliant minds, academia, all kinds of subjects, and and really sit down and help them to surface their truth? So, yeah, I call it English to English translation. (laughs) And I think it actually really started fairly early because I'm somebody who has found themselves living kind of between worlds most of my life. So I am the daughter of a Navy man. We moved five times before I was five. And even though we stayed put after that, I think that kind of moving around so much like early where you get pulled out, put back in, pulled out, put into a new situation, pulled out, put into a new situation, you A, become fairly independent, right? You need to be like a self-entertaining unit, as my husband would say. But B, you also have to figure out fairly quickly how to adapt and how to like find what makes the new situation you're in tick. Mm -hmm. And when you do that over and over and over again, you know, you, you find yourself going, oh, okay. In order for this to make sense to me, it turns out that I, I can make it make sense to somebody else too. So, you know, so when when I was high school, it was was like figuring out how to bridge the gap between like the arts kids and theater kids, which I was also was, I was part of and the athletes, because I was the, I was the manager of the varsity boys baseball team. And, you know, when I went to college, I was, you know, working in, in marketing in the business school, but I was also getting a a degree in liberal arts in American studies. And just the more that I kind of put myself, I started doing intentionally, like kind of putting myself in between worlds that seemed opposed to each other. Mm. The more that I realized that everybody was at the root talking about a lot of the same things. They were just using different words to describe it, or they were coming at it from a different perspective. And once you get used to like how one group talks about it, but you still understand like kind of the underlying principle, you're like, oh, all right, well, let me just take this principle from over here, put it in, like, let me take this arts nonprofit principle. Let me put it in business person language. And all of a sudden people are like, oh, that's a great idea. (laughs) Like, I got it. Okay, whatever. Or you take a business principle and you'd kind of like put it in nonprofit language and people are like, oh, I've never thought about that. And you're like, it's okay, it's fine. But yeah, yeah, I just, I just, found myself there, then did it intentionally. And then found that I just really loved doing it over and over again. Yeah. Well, the way you describe that is exactly what your presentations are like. I'll never forget the first time I ever saw you speak. It was in Orlando at the National Speakers Association. And which is probably arguably one of the toughest crowds to present to since it is a room of professional speakers. And we can be a bit of a judgy bunch about certain things. And, and I'll never forget, I mean, there you were in this Diane von Furstenberg, perfect wrap dress, geometric, it was green. And you sort of walked up to the front, you're this very petite little thing and you had your glasses on, your sneakers, and you just had the whole room eating out of the palm of your hand. And, and it was because uh, verbally, everything you were sharing was more of the kind of that business world, the logic, the logos, the ethos, the pathos, but also your red thread method. But then visually, you had this tension because your slides 
are so artistic. They're so steeped in a very specific brand aesthetic that is very, I mean, throwback is obviously the colloquial word I would use for it, but it's very, it's sort of, how would you explain your, the art you use in your, in your slides? They're oh, really, I use like vintage engravings. Vintage. Use, yeah. Yeah. Yes, vintage engravings. You. Yeah. But so it's really interesting because, you know, I think for a lot of us, our slides people on this, on this podcast, listen to this podcast are presenters. They are, they're still showing the PowerPoint deck on zoom. We're still out there. Look at my bullet points. And you were walking us through this like very specific way to approach it, but visually it was this very artistic moment. And so you really do walk that talk of, of, of bringing together your duck bunny as you like to call it. We'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll put a link to the duck bunny in the show notes, but how would you best describe what the duck bunny does to help bring clarity? I would argue it's the hard, one of the hardest parts of the method, but yet one of the most critical ones to really get cleared on. Well, I think, so the duck bunny is the the mascot. So what it actually is, is an optical illusion, an illustration of an optical illusion from the late 1800s. And it is a line drawing. It's a vintage engraving that depending on how you look at it, looks like either a duck or a bunny. And I love it as a mascot for one of the elements, right, of making your story make sense to people. And that element is when you're revealing what I refer to as the real problem, right? Like what's the real reason? What's the kind of tension that you have to solve before you can get the thing that you really want? Because most of us have done that, right? Like, you know, you can think about Star Wars or you can think about Harry Potter, like he wanted to find a place that he belonged, but what did he have to solve? He had to solve the tension between like, you know, the evil forces of Lord Voldemort and like the you know, and all the good magic, right? But we do this in our lives as well. You know, I, I, in that talk back in Orlando, you know, I talked about, you know, one of the things I've done in my life is I, I lost 50 pounds 22 years ago. And, you know, one of the, if I wanted to be healthy, like the tension I had to resolve was the difference between the quality of food that I was eating and the quantity of food. And it turned out that the quantity was not the problem. The quality was. So the duck bunny Wait, pause before you keep going. I'll never forget the visual of that. This is how sticky your visuals. This was about like five years ago. Yeah. I remember the exact slide you had up. This is five years ago, you guys. Think about the things we've absorbed in five years. You had a slide of grapes and raisins. Yep. And right, isn't that what you had? Yep. And it was yep. The same, the same volume of grapes. That, yeah, it was like a like a handful of grapes and a handful of raisins, same amount. And then I was, you know, and I was sharing people like how, like from a in a Weight Watchers language, how many points was the difference, right? So that a handful of grapes is zero points. And I had people guess like how many points in a handful of raisins. And people are like, oh, it's just, you know, dry grapes. It should be like zero. And I'm like, no, it's 17. And people are like, whoa, but it's the kind of thing. So the duck bunny is hopefully a sticky way to embody the fact that there's always two ways to look at a situation. And it doesn't mean that one is right or wrong, right? Because if, whether you see the duck bunny, the duck first or the bunny first, like you're right. But it is also the path to helping somebody see something differently. Because if they're looking at the world in a very duck way, like I was looking at is like, I'm just eating too much, right? Mm-hmm. Which wasn't actually the problem. As long as I only had that perspective, I wasn't going to be able to achieve the thing that I wanted. But it, so I had to be shown another way to look at the situation. I had somebody had to say, hey, you know, there's another, there's something else in that picture. Like, can you see the other animal? Can you see the bunny? Can you like, what would happen if you looked at the quality of food that you were eating? Once I could expand my view to include that as well, right? It's not that the quantity wasn't wrong. It just was incomplete. 
the duck bunny really helps embody that idea of if we want to change anything in our lives or for ourselves or in somebody else's mind, we kind of have to understand where somebody is and where we need them to be, but in a way that doesn't feel forced, right? Where we're not telling them they're wrong or don't see the duck, go look at this hippopotamus instead, right? It's mm-hmm. it's really about how do you allow someone to, to stay in their own worldview, but to see it differently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is so hard to make someone want to want to see something other than what they know to be true, right? Because we all, once we've made one decision, our desire to appear consistent is so baked into our DNA. We want to make sure that we are making decisions even to a fault to, even when we've, you know, we know we should pull out of the investment. We know we should leave the relationship. We know we need to fire so-and-so, but we'll convince ourselves of these narratives just to stay true to what we decided. Because if we change our minds, then we were wrong and we hate being wrong, right? We do. But that's, see, that's the secret. That's the thing that I learned, you know, so after I lost weight at Weight Watchers, I, I moonlighted as a Weight Watchers leader for 13 years while I was doing, you know, full-time work and brand and message strategy. And <laughs> turns out a lot of the same concepts. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I really learned first at Weight Watchers and then applied to the rest of my work, and it's still one of the basic principles of what I do today, is that to achieve long-term change, like one of the worst things that you can do is actually to challenge someone's beliefs. Like mm. the key to getting someone to for to for to make long-term change stick is actually counterintuitive as it might be to validate their beliefs. But the way that you get someone, even if it's yourself, to do something different is that you simply take very familiar concepts or very strongly held beliefs and you rearrange them in such a way, right, where the new action is based on an old belief. And that, I mean, that can, that can just be like, whoa, whoa, what are we talking about here? But, you know, for instance, I was, you know, there was a a few months ago, I was speaking to a group of luxury travel advisors, perhaps, you know what I'm talking about. And we were talking about exactly this, like, you know, they were saying, well, what happens when we've got somebody who comes in and says like, I want a group trip to Jamaica in a week for like a hundred bucks. And the travel advisor's like, no, like there's just something's got to give there that you can't have that. Like, how do you share that news with somebody? And so, you know, the, the way that I think about it is it again, back to this duck bunny saying like, well, well, how are they thinking about it right now? Like, what is the belief that's driving their resistance to postponing the trip? Mm-hmm. Well, that belief that's getting in the way is that, well, a delay of the trip means a delay of that shared experiences, which is the real reason why they wanted all those things, right? They want that group trip to Jamaica in a week for a hundred bucks because they want to have a a shared experience with a group of like-minded people. And as long as that belief is dominant, no way you're going to get them off, like to to think any differently about it. But that's where you start looking for some other equally held belief, something that's equally strong or even potentially stronger. And that's where, for instance, you can swap in something like the more the merrier, something that speaks to this idea of shared experiences. And in that context, now you say, okay, I know you really want the shared experiences, but, you know, the more the merrier, right? And as long as this is what's happening, somebody's like, because of these things can't all exist simultaneously, certain people are just not going to be able to be on this trip. Right. So if you want more people, which of these elements of location, timeframe, or expense is going to be the lever we can move so that more people can come. Mm. And you see what we're doing there? Like we didn't tell them that they're wrong. 
Like you're right. Like this is going to delay it, but isn't it even more important to have more people there if what you really care about is a shared experience? So like, that's the, to me, that's the magic of that duck bunny is just to say, I'm not telling you you're wrong at all. I'm validating like, you know, that delaying that shared experience is a problem because the more the merrier, right? Like you want people there, Mm -hmm. but by putting that new old belief into the, into the kind of that thinking process and in exchange, it becomes that thing that people can't unhear in the context of, oh, well, that's right. If I want a shared experience and by insisting on all of these things, I'm going to reduce the number of people who can come. Well, then I'm not going to get what I want. So what do I need to change? Like that's the thought yeah. process. It's, it's so brilliant. And, and what I love the most about your method, the red thread method, which I don't think we've actually named it yet, but it's called the red thread method. And we'll link to Tamsin's newsletter, her books, all the things. But I love how the red thread method, it can be used for, yes, presentations, yes, marketing, yes, you know, if you have a moment where you're trying to, you know, win an argument with a family member, I mean, you can really, you can apply it to anything. But I think the really powerful place where it can make the most impact in our lives. I mean, this podcast is called On Your Terms. Living mm-hmm. life on your terms starts with applying it to yourself and those those narratives that we're telling ourselves. So in your opinion, do you think the reason that we don't dig deeper into these levels? So for example, with your weight loss journey, for other people who maybe battle depression or anxiety or people that are stuck in a relationship that's no longer serving them, you know, do you think the real reason that we don't go two, three, four layers of what is really at the heart of this? Is it because we don't feel like doing the work because it is such hard work? Do you think it's because we are really fearful of, of pulling up the carpet and seeing what's underneath? Do you think it's because we just don't know how to, like, why do you think we don't start? Because when you say it, it makes total sense. <laughs> but obviously, yeah, I mean, you I know, common I, sense is in common practice. So yeah, I, I would say that it, it comes down to one of three things, right? The reason why we wouldn't do it. One is that we don't believe at some level it's possible, right? So, you know, that's where it's so important to hear other people's stories and to see other people doing the thing that you think you can't do or having yeah. done that. I mean, I know that I wouldn't have lost weight if, you know, Janice um, at my uh, you know office hadn't been somebody who had, who was my same height and ha- who had weighed as much as that I did at the time before I lost weight showed me that it was possible. I wouldn't have run a marathon if like one of my fellow Weight Watchers leaders like had also run it. She's not a runner, but she ran it. And I was like, that's possible. I wouldn't have gotten over panic disorder if I didn't have a therapist who said, why do you think you have to live with this? And I was like, wait, I don't like, oh, that changes things. Let me know about that. So that's one reason, right? And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have podcasts like this and to have books and memoirs and stuff where people see that it's possible. Mm-hmm. The second thing, and this is where I think I like to spend my time with my clients and, and the work that I, I try to put out in the world is that people don't necessarily believe that it's possible for them, right? It's, I see that you did it, but I don't see how I can do it. Mm. And that's where a lot of those, you know, kind of conflicting beliefs come into play. And yet the reason why I'm so obsessed with finding these connecting beliefs instead, right? These beliefs that actually connect the thing that you want with what you need to do is that they already exist. Because if you can say to yourself, I already believe this thing about myself 
Like, I already believe this thing about how the world works. I already believe this thing about how other people work. And you can start to see how that plays in. Then you start to realize that you already have everything that you need potentially to do that scary thing. And that's, you know, when it comes to talking with people about change, which is you know, kind of side project for me, that to me is what I'm so excited about because it's it's about getting people to see that they already have the beliefs that support what they do. They have already built the strengths. They have already built the skill sets to do the thing that they, they're not sure about. And they just need to be exposed to that, right? Yeah. To me, that is tends up being that thing that it's that aha moment that you're like, oh, wait, I not only did they did it, but because this is true, I can do this too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, it's so well said. And and I, I love what you're calling out, which is, it sounds so simple when you lay it out. And this is how I always feel whenever I work with you on a talk, I always come to you and I have like, you know, there's like post-it notes everywhere and there's loose leaf and my, and my hands are like covered in ink and my brain is like <laughs> going to explode. And then I walk away from you. I feel like I just got a mental spa day. Like I feel calm and clear. Like it was like a massage for my brain. And I think it speaks to whether you like, for me, it's you, for you, it was Judith for whoever you, you, you know, we can't be what we can't see. And I just think it's one of those moments where I I like talking about this because how many times do we try to untangle the necklace of our minds in a silo, in a vacuum by ourselves? We feel like we have to figure out this pitch alone or this, how do we stop smoking, drinking, eating, beating our, we feel like it has to be this dramatic solo hero's journey across the dusty deserts of the Middle East. Don't even get me started on that. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? I mean, why? yeah, we do that. yeah. yeah. So one thing I want to say first, like yeah. when you're talking about like when we're working together, I, th- what I want to make sure you don't miss, right, is that all I'm ever doing is pointing out that the seeds of your audio idea are already in what you gave me. Mm. Right. I'm always just pulling out what's there and going, look how these things fit together. Mm. You know, at most I'm taking something and just clarifying how you're saying it or rephrasing what you've already said. But what I try to avoid always with any of my clients or with any of my audience is to insert new information. It's again, why I love the duck bunny. Cause I'm not, you're not adding any lines to get someone to see anything differently. It's just like, Hey, look at this thing that you haven't been focused on. This piece is important. So yes. So there's that piece. And then all oh, the hero's journey. Oh my Lord. So this is, <sighs> mm-hmm. yeah, well, I could just, we could just chat forever. It's fire. I, I'm leaning forward. Yeah. So so many things about the hero's journey. A, is it valid? Yes, it is a form of story that can be powerful because some version of the hero's journey exists in just about every culture. So Mm -hmm. yes, it's great. There's some challenges with it. And I I see it particularly with the folks that I tend to work with most, which are folks that tend to have sophisticated solutions to fairly complex problems. So I do a lot of work with climate-focused startups, for instance, in like circular economy and regenerative agriculture and things like that. They're like things that where one thing is not going to solve it. Right. Like there is no hero that's going to save the day. Mm. And this is where I get, you know, there's no single hero that's going to say, there's no I alone can fix it. There's just, it's things are too complicated for that to be the case. And it is inauthentic, if not disingenuous, if not straight up 
false and inaccurate in some of these cases for them to represent themselves as like, I've got the answer for you. Mm-hmm. And our heavy reliance, I think, on the on the hero's journey of thinking like that everybody needs to be the hero of their own story, I think sets up some expectations that you always have to have the answer to everything in that moment. And go at it alone. And go at it alone, you know, or maybe there's a mentor who like gives you a plan. Right, the guide or, right, yeah, right. But the thing is that there's so many other kinds of stories. First of all, here's where it's a version. It's a, but there's, you know, Romeo and Juliet is not a hero's journey, right? Like Annie, not a hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Like Harry Potter can have some elements of that, but essentially it's a big old revenge story from the Mm -hmm. get-go. So like, there's a lot of different kinds of stories. And that was part of what I tried to do with, you know, Yes, I'm very reliant on story because story is how we make sense of the world. And so the red thread method is basically figuring out what elements are in every kind of story, like all of those kinds, hero's journey and love stories and rags to riches and, you know, all of those other kinds. Mm -hmm. Because as long as we have those elements, that's how things make sense. Like it's those elements that can be there. When you understand that the structure is the same, no matter what, it takes the pressure off of having to be the one that has the only answer. Because in all those other stories that aren't hero's journeys, you know, I know it's a big fancy word, but there's there's still our protagonists, right? Like they're still the person that moves the thing forward. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I... And just both on an individual level, when I'm talking with individuals about, you know, making change in their lives or their career, like I want them to understand it's like you can still have a major effect in what happens without having the end all be all answer. You don't have to save the day. Someone doesn't have to come in and save the day for you. Case in point, Game of Thrones. Who was the hero there? There wasn't one. They kept killing them off. So yeah, like this is my point. Like it's just that that we determine the kind of story that we live. You get to decide what the genre is. You get to decide what role you play. You get to decide what what you are arguing for in the story that is your life or in the story that is your business. Because that classic phrase that people say that a story is an argument is literally true. You know, these stories are arguments for something. They're they're, They're why we do what we do the way that we do it. And the more that we can figure that out, the more that we can get just our hands on that feeling of control that I think a lot of people are looking for. Um, and the thing that I find so important when we can get at like, what are those elements of the stories that we're building with ourselves, you know, building all the time, we have our hands on our true sources of power because um, they are the things that, that, that guide us in everything else that we do. Um. So good. And I feel lighter hearing that. I don't know if anyone else listening feels lighter just having that authorization to release this absurd expectation that we do, whether you're managing a small team, a small family, one person, you have a dog, you know, or maybe you just feel like responsible collectively on the internet, on Twitter for the world or whatever, wherever you sit hearing this, I want you to hear what Tamsin is saying, which is we can authorize ourselves that there is more than one way to approach this. We don't have to do it alone. We don't have to take it all on by ourselves. And, and it's not a weakness 
for us to seek out more than just the one muse, the one guide. I mean, we can turn to you, our peers. We can turn, we can learn from those that are junior to us. We can like the definition of your truth tellers and your guides and the ones you're going to link arms with to uncover what is the behavior, the real reason underlying this behavior. And I think particularly if, if you find yourself stuck in a pattern, which Everyone talks about being like stuck. We're all stuck. We're stuck in this pattern. We're stuck. I mean, I you kind of casually glossed over some really monster, monster demons that you managed and named and tamed and rose above from the panic disorder to running the marathon to losing weight to finding love again to, I mean, you have so many great stories. And and I think what's what's really beautiful that you said before we started recording, actually, you were talking kind of about the fact that our stories don't have to always be the beginning, middle, and end, whether we're telling a story to a prospect or to ourselves, we don't always have to seek the summit. We don't have to always seek the perfect bow. And and you talked about the fact that telling stories at scale, for example, with a lot of your B2B corporate marketers, that the story is ongoing and the story is evolving. And maybe the quote unquote ending is just that we are all evolving and becoming and iterating and making peace with that. So can you talk more about that? Because I was super leaning into when you mentioned that uh, earlier in our conversation, because I always think a story has to have an end, but you're like, no, maybe we're always co-creating and that's, that can be it. That's right. I think, you know, so, One of my clients described it. I was like, well, please tell me I can use this phrase. And she's like, yes, take it. She described this concept that I've been talking about as stories in motion, right? They are the stories that we are still telling. They're the stories that we are still building. They're the stories that aren't over yet. I mean, until you are on your deathbed, the story isn't done. And as long as you are breathing, as long as you are moving, as long as you are thinking, you are continuing to add to the story that isn't over yet. And those stories you know, have a name and it's confusing because, you know, that name refers to multiple things, but like, you know, the kind of fancy storytelling word for it is narrative. It's kind of the big story that things, you know, feed up into, which, you know, for instance, classic example of a narrative is, you know, the American dream, right? If you work hard enough, eventually you can be successful. And there are individual stories that prove that out right back to the, like, I have to believe it's possible, but It's like, if that's one of your guiding principles, right? It's if that's one of the terms that you are using to guide your life, like that if I work hard enough, I'm going to get what I, what I want need, then that story isn't over until you decide it is. It just isn't. And so to me, that's enormously powerful to, you know, I just, I, you know, I just love even the concept and the, the title of this podcast of On Your Terms. I'm not sure that we've always been great. I'm sure I wasn't. I know I wasn't great at this for for a lot large parts of my life. Understanding exactly what my terms really were. Because the thing is that we can we do a lot of aspirational term setting, you know, where we think we say that something like that this is how we should live our lives. Mm-hmm. But one of the things again back to Weight Watchers, I just I learned everything I needed to know about people at Weight Watchers is that you know, that old saw of action speak louder than words is completely true. That your it's your actions, and it's something we I, I worked on with a one of my clients came up with is like the, the actions reveal your priorities. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that if you feel stuck, fundamentally it means that you've got two of these terms that you're living by that are actually fighting against each other. Like mm-hmm. something that you are saying, you know, you've got two things that you're saying are you maybe even have, haven't even thought about as kind of treating is equally important. 
but because they're blocking each other, essentially they are. And so part of what I try to do if I'm building a message with a client, but certainly what I did with myself over and over again, was that I forced myself to have a battle of those terms, of those truths to say, what do you actually want more here? What do you actually believe is true here? Do you actually believe that this is not like, do you want to live a life where you, where you don't believe that it's possible to live without panic? And I was like, no, I do not. Like if I've got a professional therapist in front of me telling me it's possible not that I don't have to do it, I'm going to go with that. Like, that's awesome. Like I may not have known that up until that point, but you know, that once that possibility was opened, it fit in with other things that I already believed to be true, right? Which one of my favorite quotes from, of all things, Strictly Ballroom, which is a fantastic movie, where translated, the line is, a life lived in fear is a life half-lived. Something I deeply believe. So it's mm-hmm. nice, okay, if I believe it's possible, potentially, like, let me explore. And I also believe that a life lived in fear is a life half-lived. And I also believe, right, that kind of just, the fact of panic is that if it's a product of thoughts, right? So in other words, if I thought my way in, it kind of told me what the answer was. Well, then I can think my way out, can't Mm I? Mm -hmm. Now I'm set on a path of figuring out what do I need to think? What thoughts will work for me to counteract the ones that send me into panic? So how can I reframe what I'm thinking so that when the first feelings of panic arise, I'm not in this like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? So I could look at it and go, yep, this is a situation where you normally panic, Damson. That's right, let's go. And what are you going to do now? Like you thought your way in, you can think your way out. What's going to happen now? You know, and that's one of those moments where I go, well, thought that really worked. Only way out is through. Go ahead and panic. And it's usually as soon as I gave my permission to do it, I didn't. I think some people listening to this, first of all, I love, there's a rational element to the way that you're approaching this. And 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 you and there's, there's a, a logical, okay, technically on paper, if this is true, if, if X is true, then Y. If A is true, then B. But I think what's really important to note about what you're explaining is that rewiring your brain to overcome a panic disorder, a, a relationship with food that wasn't healthy, a relationship with another human that wasn't healthy. I mean, every single person listening is raising their hand on all of these. We all have struggled with one, two, all of these. And I think that one thing that I really want to call out is that rewiring the way you think through, the way your thoughts impact those actions really requires a staunch defense of not only your beliefs, but the boundaries that are required in order to protect those beliefs. And I will say firsthand, I mean, I have seen you with with your health, for example. I mean, if you get low blood sugar, because you are very disciplined and you have a very clear eating plan that you have worked. I mean, the before and after photos are shocking of you. And this isn't about, oh my gosh, you just like look so much better, but you know, look good, feel good, look good, make good impact, look good, be able to show up in a, in a big I thought I looked great, actually heavy. I just didn't like how I felt, frankly. You, so. you look beautiful both ways. And exactly. It was the feeling. It was a vibrancy. It was the light in your eyes and the after yeah. picture that really stuck out for me. And, and, but doing that, I mean, if you, you've mastered a lot of those, the time management uh, around like, this is how this is going to go down because you know, your triggers, you know, what's going to trip you up. And even in your relationships, I mean, you are so in demand by so many clients. You're traveling, you're a mom, you're a friend, you do all these things. And so your time is very specifically blocked. Well, 
we got in a situation, what was it like six months ago, where I was not managing my time. My business was blowing up, which was a champagne high-class problem, but I didn't have the infrastructure to manage it properly. I didn't have the right people. I didn't have the right processes. And I had flaked on like two or three of something we were trying to get together and do. And you finally called me out and you were like, Aaron, listen, I don't have time for this. Either you're in or you're out. What's it going to be? And I'll never forget. I was like, God damn, I love this woman because it's like, <laughs> Because if you weren't going to call me out, who was? And we only uh, we only allow people to treat us the way that we treat them if we let them. And so you gave me like one or two passes and then you were like, hard no, this is how I roll. Are we going to like have a healthy relationship or not? And I was like, thank you. I'm sorry. You're right. Let's do it. And then we got right back on track. And And I think, especially with women, I don't know that a lot of people have like the grit or the honesty or the bravery to just to defend those boundaries in a clean, clear, communicative fashion to create those healthier relationships and to defend those boundaries and to honor those beliefs. And, and do you feel like that's a big part of what trips us up sometimes is like, we don't, we don't plan for the inevitability of flaky friends or triggers or those things that can knock us off our course. I think, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's perhaps a silver lining. I mean, you know, you, you don't spend 17 years with the panic disorder and not still have like some of, I mean, I think the silver lining of that is that I, you know, I'm, I'm very much a scenario planner, right? I'm, I'm always, I'm still thinking through like what's, what could happen. I just don't freak out about it anymore. What I think is at, 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 Core. And it's just interesting because I was having an interesting conversation with my sister last night because her parents are aging and that's a whole thing. Mm. And, you know, my sister acknowledges that she's incredibly conflict averse. And, and, and I was like, well, you know, I'm not. So let's just send me on in. Like, you know, just tell me what you need. But for me, like, was I always that way? Absolutely not. I was, I was definitely, have you ever heard of this way of characterizing family cultures as guessers versus askers? No, go on. Oh my gosh, I love this. This is not mine. I forget who came up with it, but it's a really useful frame. It's a duck bunny, by the way, guessing versus asking. Um, so in guesser families, right, the the desires, the needs, et cetera, are not spoken out loud. You are expected to guess what they are, right? And in fact, I'm already, it, I'm already it feeling comes, so seen. Keep going. <laughs> and in fact, it can come across like whenever somebody does ask for something directly, it's kind of like, oh, oh that's. Like I saw something uh, like that was, I think, taken over from TikTok the other day about like, you know, somebody was contrasting Irish and German people offering cake, right? I love this where they're like, oh, couldn't possibly. And they're trying to push it away. Like, oh, that was very forward. Uh, that, that is the best. We have to link to that clip in the show notes. It's so right. good. <laughs> because I think that's like a beautiful explanation of the difference between guessers and askers, which yes. is right. Like, you know, the Irish like of offering the cake. No, no, no. I couldn't possibly, you know. And I know from having like first husband was part of an Italian family. The, the rule was three. You said no three times and then you were expected to say yes. So that's the kind of guessing culture. Well, I was absolutely raised in a family of guessers and I took that and did very bad things with it in my head. And which is how I ended up, you know, which is how I'm not blaming anybody. It's my own reaction to that turned into panic where I was always so trying to anticipate what somebody needed, what somebody's expectation was that it just, I, I, I let that freeze me up for years. And so and also, and also, sorry. And also when we do that, because I'm also from a family of guessers, 
Also, you're trying to anticipate and in the process of anticipation, you generate a completely false story in your own mind. It may or may not just be nowhere right. But yes. in your brain. And you've already worked the whole scenario through and none of it is real. So keep going. That's right. And askers have a very, I don't know what it was like to grow up in asking family because I don't know what that was like, but that's where you just say what you want. It's the German and the Irish versus German thing. You just say what you want. You say say what's what's, you know, what you don't want. And that's it. Like there's, there is no subtext. It just is what it is. I mean, honestly, learning to become an asker was a self-preservation. Like it was required for my self-preservation because once I, once I understood that it was the kind of constant anticipation and trying to meet expectations and feed into narratives and whatever that I had, I had a no idea of knowing what they actually were and be yeah. completely impossible to like meet everyone's expectations all the time. Anyway, right. I, like in order to save myself, again, again, my, the term I set was, I'm going to live without this. Like once someone has told me that it's even maybe possible to live without panic disorder, I'm like, I'm going to do, that is the thing that I want. Mm-hmm. So what do I, what am I willing to do? I came to a point where I was like, I am willing to disrupt my family's culture, right? And and shed it because I will not feel that way again. Like I just, I, I, there was a point in my panic disorder where I couldn't leave the house, where I couldn't drive. I don't ever want to be there again. And so everything that rationally or not, I felt was contributing to that is something that I was like, not doing it. Because again, I made myself, I made myself have a battle of beliefs. I put these beliefs in a fight with each other. And one of the things that I say in the book is that when two truths fight, only one wins. When you make yourself do that, and it can feel uncomfortable in the moment, but I would argue that that momentary discomfort of having to choose between two things is eminently more tolerable than the constant friction of two things fighting each other all the time. And you're not letting them, you, you not letting one of them win. Like, cause it's just, it's like two creatures just picking at each other, picking each other, picking each other until both of them are wounded. And guess what? It's all you, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of just like letting that happen, say to yourself, you know, either what is it that I actually want in this situation? Isn't it more important for me And again, however you answer is fine, by the way, as long as you make the choice. Because if you decide that in a moment, it's actually more important for you to enjoy the the social camaraderie of this dinner party that you're at, than to hold fast to maybe some unrealistic expectation of how much weight you're going to lose this week, that is fine. But you have to let go of the other one. You have to own that choice. And to say... I actually, this is actually more important to me. And how do you know? Because that's the action that you took. Mm. Like that's, and to me, I think people are so afraid of doing that, but my experience over and over again, and it's not just me, it's been when I've seen other people do this too, is that it makes you feel lighter because you've, Mm. you've stopped that internal battle happening that you may Mm. not have even realized was happening. You just- Mm chose, which meant you can let the one that's causing all the problem go away mm-hmm. for a little while mm-hmm. or ever, you know? And mm-hmm. so, yeah. So sometimes I can be a little brusque. I know. Um, no, but it, it's, but it's refreshing but it comes, because comes well, from it, that. Well, well, okay. So, so many things to, to, I hate the word unpack. So many things to unravel here. Okay. So, so, so number one, how did we grow up? What was the yes. behavior that we saw as the way to 
communicate expectations and facilitate alignment between opposing parties. Okay. I also grew up in a monster guessing. I mean, is there a stronger word than guessing? Mind reading? Maybe. I don't know. Exactly. Yes. Mind reading. Elevation. But that, that Irish video definitely was between the eyes for me. So first of all, how did you grow up? What did you learn? Okay. Then number two, what you talked about, which I think is really, really important is to put it to a battle of beliefs. That's a beautiful phrase because it is it's strong language to say that it's a battle, but it's not, it's not yoga. It's not just going to surface. Like you do have to take a stand armor up and effing decide what is it for you at that moment. And to your point, either one is okay, but like have the balls to make a choice, have the guts. It takes guts to go with your gut, as I say in my book, but like have the guts to go with it. And then finally crossover crossover and like set it free because that tension, it's almost like a computer program running in the background and it's draining your battery. And by the way, it's also setting you up for a lose-lose. Think about it. You're losing, you're losing in the moment of, of not experiencing either. And then later you lose, you lose twice. You lose again because you, you never were fully immersed, fully present fully just able to experience the joy of that space. And so this will probably come out probably in two or three weeks. Well, it's going to be prime holiday season. Okay. So, so it's December 1st. Right everyone's now. back and they're guessing or they're ask, asking families. Yeah. Yes. I mean, this is literally <laughs> going to come out the perfect. And I love, I feel like podcasts, it, it, they come out, you either, someone shares it with you right when you need it, or it drops right when you, it's, it, it's that beautiful fortuitous timing of, of, it's like a, it's like a beautiful Murphy's law. Like when you need it, you get it. Yeah. So when people are listening to this, whether it is the family dynamics and politics that are bringing out that, that I never forget, it was probably, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago. And Hartman, my husband and I were back home and there was some fight about politics, religion, who knows, whatever. So we walk away after like too much wine and everyone's mad. And my husband looked at me and he goes, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes when you're with your family, he's like, it brings out the worst version of you. It brings out the work. And I was so offended. And he said, it almost feels like this teenage version of you who's uncertain and doesn't know who she is. And I was so mad at him, went to bed, not talking. Well, the next morning I'm up for the walk and I have this big think on it. And I'm like, you know what? That's because I am in a battle of beliefs of who I was and who I'm becoming. And I need to step in either be the 16 year old with braces who doesn't know who they are or be the freaking 35 year old woman who has seen some shit and who knows exactly who she is and show up as her. And I did, I crossed over. Well, the rest of vacay was great. And honestly, knock on wood, fingers crossed, not to jinx it for this year, but it has really served me. And so I just just love that uh, recommendation that you do, that you do identify and call them out and then make a choice. Right. And even a decision not to do it also tells you something. Right. And because not everybody's ready to do it right away. It took me, I have to say, like, it took me a long time to lose weight because, you know, in, in the beginning, I wasn't ready to have that battle yet. And, Mm -hmm. and continuing the battle served me in a way, right. It served me to be able to connect with other people who are having similar struggles or whatever. But eventually, you know, there gets to that point where you feel that pit in your stomach where you're like, this is not okay anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing where, you know, I just, again, I learned from overcoming my panic disorder that there's a point at which for me, that quick ripping off of the band aid was infinitely better than mm-hmm. like continually 
like pardon the visual image, but continually like accidentally knocking off the scab. Right. And, you know, I read something else recently that I just resonated very strongly as well, which was that in, you know, toxic family situations, and I'm not saying my family's toxic and I'm not saying your family's toxic, but it was useful to say it's that in toxic family situations, that it's the healthiest emotion, like the person who's most emotionally healthy that typically creates the most friction in the family because- Whoa, right? pause, pause, sorry. Can you say that again really yes. slowly so we can make so, this on Instagram? <laughs> so in toxic families, this went, and I had my own therapist verify that. It's like, is this true? What I read on Twitter or whatever. In toxic families, the most emotionally healthy person creates the most friction. Why? Because typically the most emotionally healthy person is the most, the person who's most self-aware, the person who's set their boundaries, the firmest, and the one that walks in and goes, not taking it, not doing it. You guys can do what you're doing. I'm not doing it. And that disrupts things. So even if it's not toxic, but even if there's places where there's unhealthy dynamics, I think the people, you know, I think you always see it when there's unhealthy dynamics, the people who have figured out those dynamics are the ones that, that create the, from certain people's perspective, create the problem because it's like, well, why didn't you just let that go? And it's like, well, that's, again, that's a point where you get to choose like, well, is it more important for me to maintain a happy, somewhat dysfunctional interaction here? Mm -hmm. Or do I want to walk away from this saying like, you know, you know, in my case, I'm a 48 year old woman who's like seen some shit and like, I am not the, you know, I'm not the 16 year old that you seem to think that I still am. Um, Oh man, that is so powerful. Isn't that good? So it's just, to me, that's, it's work. And you know, like, I was very thankful when I was like, like therapist, is this true? And she's yeah. like, yes, it is. God, like, what is better than a good validation? But exactly. no, I'm that, God, that is so powerful and so juicy on so many levels. And it's interesting because you know, people say pick your battles because yeah. you, because also it is the holidays. And if you really do the work and you, you really, I mean, you also want to have a good time. So there's also like this balance, right? Because yep. you don't want to just totally check out and keep everything just surface and just be this masked, muted, whatever vanilla version, because that's not living richly and deeply and authentically and juicy and true at the same token, it's tough when you get the black sheep label or you get the, Oh, here we go with this one again. Right. Because you don't want to feel, we want the combative dancing coming at it again. I'm like, right. (laughs) We also don't want to be that person because we, we, we love these people and they are our people and we don't see them a lot. And so there's, it's an interesting line to walk. And so I love that you've called out not just the battle of beliefs, but it's okay to spend the time contemplating. Is it the battle I want to take on? Is it the right time? Yeah. I have the emotional bandwidth. Is this a space that is like the, an absolute highest priority that in five years, it's still going to bug me. Then it probably is time to go to war. But if not, maybe you do let it go sometimes. But so I think I like that idea of spending the time contemplating. Like, am I, do I have the armor? Do I have the stamina? Is it this important that it's time to make some choices? And, and yeah. maybe the answer is no. And that's okay too. So I love yeah, that. And I would say that to some of my Weight Watcher members where, you know, they were struggling and I, I would, you know, I think they were surprised for something to say, like, maybe it's not the right time. Mm. And what was interesting always was to, was to see people's reactions to it. Because when they said, you know, maybe it's not, it wasn't. And when they were like, no, it's time, then they, that's when they engaged. Like you kind of force that moment in a gentle way, but you get like, I just, what I'd love to get across is that you can, you can always do this for yourself, mm-hmm. right? When in that moment where something like, as you did with, with, with your reaction to Hartman, like in that moment, you're like, well, F you buddy, like what the hell? Yeah. But it's like, but you value his opinion 
obviously well enough to go, well, wait a minute. If he's saying that to me and he said that enough to risk whatever my reaction would be, what is that telling me? And how do I, who am I? How do I want to, how do I want to incorporate that? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's going to be like, I don't know yet. Let me hold on. And sometimes it's going to be like, as you did, which is say, you know what? It no, I've done this work on myself for a reason. I love my family, but in these, in this, this way, this is important to me for myself, for how Hartman sees me, however, however you want to look at it. I just, I think we're afraid. I think people don't dig because they're afraid of what they'll find. But what I have, what I know is there is that what you will always find are the building blocks of what you need always. Because, you know, there's a story that I, I tell in the, like the one motivational keynote that I, that I give that it's about like, so I have two sons and, you know, probably about six, five, six years ago now, they were invited to a rock climbing birthday party, like at a rock climbing gym, you know, know, so inside and Thomas, my older son, like wanted to go to the top of the wall, not the kid's wall, like adult wall. Okay. He was nine. Right. And so here's this like little skinny kid, like all harnessed up, like holding on to this rope. And he's like trying to pull, trying to pull, trying to pull. And it's like little teeny tiny arms. Cause this is not an athletic kid. He is in fact, my child. And he's just like getting really tired, but, but, he, and so he would like come back down and then he'd be like, but then he'd be like, but I want to get to the top again still my child. So he would try again. He'd get halfway up. He'd get really tired. He'd like come back down and like getting really frustrated. So there's, you know, somebody at the rock climbing gym, like sees this comes over and they're like getting pretty tired. Huh? And he's like, yes. (laughs) And he's like, my arms aren't strong enough. And they're like, you're right. And he's like, what? what?" And he's like, but your legs are, it's like, you know, like, what do you mean? He's like, well, He's like, but I've never been rock climbing before. He's like, yeah, but you walk, don't you? You're standing here. It's like, so even though you haven't been rock climbing before, your legs are actually the strongest part of you. So use your legs to push up the wall. Use your arms to guide where you're going, but use your legs, which are strong already to push yourself up the wall. And he kind of like looks at them inside. And then he's like, all right, fine. It's a better answer what I'm doing right now. And then, and he makes it up the wall. But the point is this, like we all have that. We have all been walking around on these beliefs, on these principles, on these skill sets that we've developed oftentimes without consciousness all the time. And you will never be able to convince me that whatever somebody wants to do isn't within their grasp because of what they've already built. So I know people say that what got you here won't get you there. And I think that that is a contemptible lie. I said, the only way to get where you want to go is to focus on what got you here. So what got you here will get you there. You just need to value what you've already built and see how you can use it in a different way. So no, he'd never been rock climbing before, but he had built that strength. And each of us has those strengths already. And you know, if nothing else, that's what I hope my work helps, whether it's individuals or organizations discover is what are those, what are those beliefs? What are those principles? What are those skill sets? What are those competencies that you have already built that are going to be the things that you can find? And the only way you're going to discover what is strong for you is to put it in a fight, is to do that like want fight or that battle of beliefs. Because 
what's strong will show up. Like that's the thing. When you put them at, against each other, you're, you will tell yourself what's more important. And you had already done that work for yourself, Aaron. So you knew you were strong enough to stand up for it, for yourself and how you wanted to be seen. So that's, yeah, what got you here will get you there. Trust it. Like the biggest leaps start from the surest ground and you've already got it. Hamden, I love you. That was so fire. I hope everyone listening to that took that straight to heart. You need Tams in your life. I, I'm lucky enough I get to talk to you all the time. But if you guys have not followed Tams Webster, check her out on Instagram. Her Red Thread newsletter is insane. That was just like a little tiny taste of Tamsin. But I love her, your newsletters are my favorite newsletters. Oh, thanks. Because you you curate all of these fascinating articles and studies, stories, moments. It's not just the Tamsin show. I mean, you really, you really bring this collective fascination in every newsletter. Your book is the Bible for anyone who is a speaker, a salesperson, a marketer, a leader, anyone that's just trying to take what Tamsin just said and put it to the test and, and walk that walk and, and ask yourself the hard questions. And it really does feel like a coach that helps you, whether you you know go to a therapist or you don't, it's almost like a business therapist that you can lean yeah, on. I would say I do message therapy with people. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's message therapy. So, so um, Tamsin, I just thank you so much for being so generous, for being so uh, vulnerable and open and, and sharing all these incredible stories guys follow Tamsin love on her. I love you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I can't wait to see you live in January very soon. Soon. Thank you so much. Thanks Tamsin. Thank you so much for investing your heart, your mind, of course, your time with me here today. And it is my deepest hope that you have gleaned at least a few new nuggets on how to better live a life that you love on your terms. You can subscribe to see all of my weekly episodes. And if you have time, you can send a screenshot of your review of the podcast to onyourterms at erinking.com and you'll be sent a free access pass to my Digital Persuasion Masterclass, where you'll learn how to attract attention, increase your influence, and sell smarter from behind the screen. I hope that you'll join me next week for another episode of On Your Terms. And until then, let's connect on Instagram at Mrs.Aaron.King. Till next time, friends.